Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. There are times where it's hard to go back to the day in and day out routine of our lives. One of the most common things I hear people say about vacations is that when they get back from their vacation, they need a vacation. Now, I know that that is sort of contradictory and and doesn't necessarily make much sense, but I think every one of you knew precisely what I meant when I made that statement. I think sometimes all the fun and exciting experience that we have just take it all out of us just as much or maybe even more than if we had just stayed home and kept with our regular work schedule. But when we get back from a vacation, we've worn ourselves out from it. Bills still need to be paid, and people need to be served by the vocations that God has blessed us with. And so we get up, and we go back to the normal, everyday schedule. Now, sure, life on vacation was more exciting, and maybe even it was the highlight of your year, but we need to go back. We need to get back to ordinary life Even though you are tired and dragging after all the excitement, the reality is you have to go back to the normal. Well, last week, we saw this amazing story of the transfiguration of Jesus. While Jesus looked like an ordinary man, we saw he was God the Son in human flesh. And and on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus manifested this glory in a visible way for us. And in that moment, Peter asked to build shelters for Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who were there with him, so that he could prolong that experience. He was kind of like the kid who asked to stay living in an expensive hotel room on a tropical beach instead of going back home to ordinary life. That ordinary life that for a kid involves waking up early, going to school. We'd much rather stay with the vacation life, with with the, the fancy things, with the things that are out of the ordinary. And in our passage for last week, we saw that Jesus had a mission. They couldn't stay on the mountain. They couldn't stay with that manifested glory. They couldn't be there where Jesus was radiating that light. The mission of Jesus was not to stay there. It was it was to return to the grind of life. And the mission that he had been called to and And we know what that mission is. We not only know the story, but Jesus has been giving us hints of this going on. The the mission that he's on isn't the glory radiating on the mountain. The mission is one of suffering. So as we continue through the Gospel of Luke, we we still find ourselves in chapter 9. And we're looking at a relatively small passage today. And what happens here isn't much of an event compared to where we've been finding ourselves lately. We've not only been given accounts of this transfiguration and the the glory of Jesus, but we have seen some very, very astounding miracles. And so the natural question that we would be asking if we were reading the book of Luke for the first time would be, what's up next for Jesus? How in the world is he going to top the transfiguration? And so as we dive right into verse 37 today, we see that Luke lets us know 
that it's back to business as normal for Jesus. Now, now we've seen as we have been going through Luke that he has different ways of letting us know how the passage of time is happening. There's some language that makes us know, like here, where it's right away the next day, or there's other times where we're meant to feel there has been a substantial passing of time. Now, this is because we need to remember that the ministry of Jesus was three years long. What we have in the Gospels is not a beginning of the ministry and everything that happened up until the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. No, there's a whole lot that happens to Jesus over the course of three years, but we have all of it condensed for us in what we need, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It has been given to us in these Gospels. And really, any of the Gospels can be read in, in less than an hour, right? And so we're meant to understand here that, that there's time passing and some things happen after a while and some things happen right away. But Luke is deliberate here to let us know that something happens immediately. It's, it's the next day. It's right away after the transfiguration. Not sometime later, not around four or so days down the road like we've heard Luke say before. He lets us know it's the next day. Because remember, Peter Peter wanted to prolong the experience on the mountain. He wanted the time on the mountaintop to be extended. But Jesus let him know that that wasn't the plan. That's not where they're going. And, and so Luke lets us know that they moved on quickly. And we also see that it's absolutely right back to the grind for Jesus because we see that there's a great crowd meeting him there. And you can kind of feel for Jesus here, can't you? Like, he is consistently being followed by the crowds. Now, I'm the type of person who doesn't necessarily mind a crowd. And so I can sort of imagine how this would, would feel, but, but I can imagine how it sounds to you to be around crowds all the time for those of you who are maybe a little more introverted. As somebody who doesn't mind crowds, uh, they can fatigue me as well. Doing youth ministry for 14 years, I found myself in crowds for extended periods of time quite often. Youth rallies, music festivals, and there would be times where I would get home and I was just glad not to be around people for a while. It's draining. And so imagine the ministry of Jesus with the crowds around all the time pressing up against him Imagine what this would have been like for Jesus and for the disciples. It's just fatiguing to think about, isn't it? And Luke tells us all of this to remind us of just how popular Jesus has become and how what he is doing is, is resonating with the crowds around them. And while we see, see Peter confessing Jesus as the Messiah, and you and I know that he's the Messiah from all the information that we've read in the book of Luke, we can sense a bit of a tension here in the text. We've just seen that Jesus has been transfigured. He's shown his glory. But the people haven't seen this, but they must know. That's what the crowds sort of let us know, that while we know Jesus is the Messiah, they are feeling it. Remember the tension in this time. These people would have been seeing the miracles of Jesus, and they would have been wondering, is this the guy? They are a people who lived amongst and, and live for this, this messianic tension, this expectation of the Messiah coming. Because they knew the scriptures. They would have been hoping for the Messiah in general. And they would have done the math. 
They would have looked at the messianic expectations and prophetic words from the book of Daniel, and they would have been expecting the Messiah to come when they were alive, when they were around. This is a messianic hotbed. And on top of all of that expectation, they had good reasons, really good reasons, to want the Messiah to come. They wanted him for a very good reason. They were victims of Roman occupation. And they thought the Messiah was going to take care of that. And so the fact that these crowds are persistently coming to greet Jesus just makes a lot of sense. Not only the scriptural expectation, but the socio-political expectation. This is who they want. And so if they think he's the guy, they're going to go after him. And so as we move on to verses 38 and 40, what Luke does in the next two verses takes us from the crowds, the masses who are pressing in, those who are waiting for him, and it, and it whittles it down. It, it helps us to see what's going on, why they're there. And, and he, Luke really gives us a story that we can have empathy for, doesn't he? I mean, these are the kinds of people who are coming to Jesus, and with the story that this man tells, we get it, we feel it. As I was considering this passage this week, it really dawned on me just how frequently we have seen in Luke parents that Jesus is helping or parents who are coming to Jesus to try and, and have their children healed. Uh, think about some of them here. We, we just recently saw the resurrected daughter of Jairus and we saw how Jesus raised the widow's son. And this is extra powerful for us because I think it puts us in a position of empathy because you and I, we would fight crowds to have our children healed. We feel this. We understand this. We know why someone would fight through the crowds, don't we? Because we would do this ourselves. And so you imagine that you are this father. His only child is overcome by a spirit and this child cries and convulses. And the word that cuts me through the most here is that it shatters him. That's a powerful, powerful word. Obviously, the young man isn't breaking into pieces. What is being said is that he is just broken apart by this evil spirit. All the other things are, are just symptoms that, that might pass. But what it does to him at his core here is it shatters him. And that's just heartbreaking. And our heartstrings are, are also tugged at by the fact that this man says this spirit hardly ever leaves him. This isn't just something they have to deal with occasionally. It's a persistent problem. And who knows how long this has been going on. We're just introduced to this man and his son, but, but his problem has to go back a long time. And now they're hearing about Jesus. And so it gives this man hope that perhaps if he can get to Jesus, his son will be healed. The son that he loves won't be shattered anymore. So as we're drawn into this story of this man and his son, we're pulled into the story even deeper because we find out that he didn't even come to Jesus first. He begged the disciples to cast out the Spirit, but they couldn't do it. The disciples were unable. And that's a very interesting detail here because 
The disciples have been out. We just heard about this. The disciples were going out. They were healing, casting out spirits. They even went with Jesus to tell about how successful their ministry was, right? Remember back to when that happened, that there were probably some amazing stories. And we, we enjoyed hearing about this because this means that the authority of Jesus expand beyond his physical presence, and it was going out with his disciples. And this was exciting because the ministry of Jesus could expand. How much more could the message of Jesus and the healing of Jesus, ministry of Jesus go out with 12 more people to do the work? This was a great thing. But here are these disciples who were, who were just awesome not that while ago. They can't do this miracle. What? Why? The disciples have seen all the miracles of Jesus. They've been there as the divinity of Jesus has been on display. In fact, three of them were just on the mountain as Jesus was transfigured. They physically saw with their own eyes the majesty, the glory of God the Son. Their faith meters should be at 100%, right? They should be able to execute a special healing attack. Now, I hope that the younger people, I see one of them was paying attention, that was a great video game reference for those of you who don't get it, okay? I was seeing if the younger people were awake. But their faith meters should be full. They should be able to do any miracle. Regardless of, of what's happening, they should be able to do this. I think you get the point. If ever they're going to have the ability to do this miracle, if ever they're going to have the faith to do an amazing thing, it should be now. It should be right now. They've seen the glory of Jesus face to face. They were blown away by it. They should be able to do anything. But we find that they can't. Even though they have seen and done miraculous things, they aren't all the way there yet. They're not at the end of the road. And what we have here is contrast between what we saw on the mountain and what we see now is that they don't have faith. The glory and majesty of Jesus, and now they don't have faith. The glory of Jesus at the top, and then at the bottom of the hill, a lack of belief. And so we see in verse 41 that Jesus responds here with kind of a harsh statement. And this, this statement isn't pointed at the man, because clearly this guy has faith. He has fought through people to get to Jesus but it's directed at those around him who, who lack complete trust and complete faith in Jesus. And, and this statement is a harsh one. But we know that Jesus, Jesus has made similar statements like this at other times. People were coming out to see the one who they thought would deliver them, but they didn't truly have faith. They were persistently looking for signs and wonders, but they wouldn't believe the word that was being spoken to them. And then when Jesus does validate that he is the one, that he is the one with authority by his miracles, what did they want? They just wanted more. They wanted more signs. They wanted more things that benefited them. And we see Jesus say something interesting here with this rebuke that he makes. He says, how long am I to be with you? And it's a reminder to the disciples and us that Jesus isn't going to be around them forever. Jesus is headed to suffering. Jesus will depart from them. And this is a rather scathing rebuke of the disciples and the crowds because you see that it shows an extreme level of disappointment in Jesus. Clearly, 
Jesus knows the lack of faith in both the disciples and the crowd. And so we see another stark contrast in the next statement of Jesus. As I said, this comment isn't directed at the man. We saw a contrast between the glory of Jesus on the mountain and then the unbelief down on the plain. And now we're seeing a contrast in the faith of the man who wants his son to be healed and the people who are plagued by a lack of faith. And it reminds them why they should have faith in Jesus. He tells this man to have his son come to him. And we see this in verses 42 and 43. As the son of this man comes near to Jesus, the demon throws him on the ground and he begins to convulse And we don't know if this is a result of the evil spirit coming near to Jesus. And once again, the evil spirit knows the identity of Jesus like we've seen previously. Or if this is just a sign that this is constantly an issue for them. It's always happening to this, this, uh, the son of this man. But the idea that we get is that this is terrible. What this man's son is afflicted with is awful. It can't be controlled And it isn't just an every once in a while type of ailment. It seems to have power that can't be controlled. But what do we see? Jesus has authority. Jesus doesn't touch him. Jesus doesn't do some sort of sleight of hand. This isn't a sideshow display here. This is a show that Jesus has power. It's to show that Jesus merely speaks and the evil spirit leaves him. This boy was afflicted and nothing could be done by anybody else. Not even the disciples could end this possession by this spirit, but Jesus speaks and the evil spirit has to obey. And so we're reminded once again of the authority and the power that Jesus has. And this faithless and twisted generation is astonished at the majesty of God. Remember what we just saw. He calls them a a faithless and twisted generation, but now they see in this miracle the majesty of God. And that's such a powerful statement because we just saw the majesty of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. The light and the, the glory of God was on display. But here we see that the glory of God is also on display in the amazing thing that Jesus has just done. It isn't just the majestic light on the top of the mountain. It's also shown to us at the bottom of the hill in the authority that he has over the evil spirits. And the people should be astonished. And so should we. And so that's where I want us to dwell as we consider our application of this passage for our lives today. We are to be astonished at the glory and the majesty of God. Last week, we saw that he had glory in and of himself, and, and so we are amazed, and we should be worshiping him. And we were reminded last week, because Moses was there on the top of the mountain, we were reminded of that story from the Old Testament where Moses had his face shining, he needed to cover it. But what we learned last week is that Moses didn't have that glory in and of himself. He was reflecting the glory of God. But we saw with Jesus, it came up from within him. Jesus is God himself. That glory was a part of who Jesus is. And so we're astonished at Jesus because Jesus is God himself. And that is worthy of being astonished about. But here at the bottom of the hill, we're also shown that Jesus is worthy of our astonishment 
because of the ordinary things that he does. Now, they're, they're miracles, but they happen not on the mountaintop. They, they happen in the plain. There are many things for us to be astonished by. We are astonished, yes, by the majesty and glory of Jesus, for we know that he is the one who came from heaven. He is God in human flesh. He did this for us, and that is an astonishing truth in and of itself. I mean, what an amazing God we serve who, who left the glory of heaven and came here for us. But he did not come merely to show off his heavenly glory, to show us his majesty. He came to his people in the ordinary things. And as we look at this miracle today with the people on the plain who are astonished at the power that Jesus has over this evil spirit, we are reminded that in his death and resurrection, Jesus showed his power over the devil, the one who was afflicting his people. And so we need not fear the powers of evil because the Lord Jesus Christ has authority over all of them and we are astonished. So we should be astonished that Jesus delivered us from the power of evil. And as we think back over other miracles that we have seen Jesus do, we're reminded of other reasons that we should be astonished, like the people on the plain. Jesus heals the deaf, and so we are astonished that he has caused us to hear the word of the gospel. He has healed the blind, and so we are astonished that we can see the glory that is shown to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that he has raised the dead, and so we are astonished at the truth that we were once dead in our sin, and we were dead in our unbelief, and yet he has raised us to the newness of life. These are astonishing things that we should be remembering. We are the people of God, and we are to be astonished at what he has done for us. And so this is a great reminder for us on this Lord's Day. Because today, we come to the table of our Lord. And this is a beautiful reminder of all these truths that we should be astonished by. Because as we touch and as we taste the elements today, we are reminded that Jesus came to us in a real way. We do not serve a God who is just transcendent and, and distant. The Lord Jesus came down to us in our very own flesh and in our blood. But we also do not just serve a God who is one of us, right? We are astonished by the truth that He is the almighty, glory-filled God the Son. And by our taking of these elements, we not only are reminded of the physicality of who Jesus is, but we also remember how He spiritually nourishes us. We are given strength to serve this One who is filled with glory, but we are also humbled by the truth that he emptied himself to come in our very own flesh to bear the wrath of God for our sin that we might be a saved people. So may we be astonished today as we come to the table, astonished at the majesty of Jesus. Because as we take these elements this morning, we are called to consider who he is. And may we not only think of this as we come to the table today, as we walk around during the week, may we be astonished at the work of Jesus for us, that we might be his faithful servants, that we might be his humble servants who do his astonishing work in his world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.